Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning we're kicking off a series during the fall, which will be in the book of Daniel. Paul Goebel did a great job last week from Jeremiah 29, laying the foundation. And now we're moving into Daniel chapter 1, before we come to the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper, this sacrament that he's given us, this outward invisible sign of an inward invisible grace. The word of God is also one of his means of grace, and we know and believe that every bit of it, from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, is his word. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And we need this. We need this every day. And so as we come to this passage, we're going to see things that are very familiar as we move through the book, stories that are well-known. But there's so much here that we need even today. I'm going to begin reading at Daniel 1 and go through verse 7. As I read, listen particularly for the sovereignty of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, as we open your word, we need your Holy Spirit to illuminate these words, to encourage us with the hope of Christ, to let us see how all of this points towards the one who is our king, who is extending his kingdom. Father, remove from us even now the things that might be distracting us. Enable us to hear and to see, to feel, and to think rightly that you, Holy Spirit, might change our lives even in this moment. Father, if there are any here do, who do not yet believe in Jesus, who have not yet trusted Christ, may you do that glorious work even now, resurrecting hearts that are dead for the sake of your glory. Rescue us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. At the beginning of his small commentary on the book of Daniel, David Helm, who's preached here in this pulpit, who most recently was here to speak at Tim Timsley's memorial service, is a dear brother, and he's written a wonderful, very accessible commentary on the book of Daniel, which at times can be very mysterious and perhaps hard to understand, but it's an important book. All of God's word is. But I want you to listen to what he says in the first couple paragraphs of his introduction. He asked, how can we remain faithful to our God in a world that rejects him? Is it even worth standing firm and obeying him when his kingdom often seems so very far away? I appreciate his honesty. 
How can we live courageously and confidently in nations that do not seek to live under God's rule? And is it possible to be a blessing to our nations and show the power and goodness of our God even in a time such as ours? Those are pressing questions for those of us who live in context where to be a Christian is no longer the norm, if it ever was, and is increasingly to be misunderstood, maligned, and even mistreated. And since this is the context in which Daniel found himself, the book that bears his name is a book that will, three things, reassure, challenge, and thrill us as we read it. Reassure, challenge, and thrill us as we read it. I wonder for you which of those words stands out. For me, it's the word thrill. Because I'm not sure many of us are really thrilled with the illuminated work of God's Spirit and His Holy Word. I'm not sure when we hear these stories again of a man thrown into a fiery furnace or into a lion's den that we pause long enough to consider that it really happened. This was a real man who'd been taken from his land as an exile, who's being used by God to do great things. I wonder how many of us truly are overwhelmed when we open the pages of this living word, that which is sharper than a double-edged sword, or if it doesn't over time simply become something we do out of duty more than delight, something we do out of just obedience as opposed to the very living God has given us his very living word, illuminated by the very living Holy Spirit, that we might be fed with his encouragement. Friends, we need to be thrilled when we open the word of God. Each day with Jesus is not necessarily going to be sweeter than the day before. But when those days become more regular, when there's not a sweetness, when there's not a passion, when there's not a zeal, something is wrong. And that which is wrong is nobody else's fault but yours. It's not my fault. It's not another pastor's fault. It's not the books you're reading's fault. It is something that has happened inside you that the enemy, Satan, wants to take the living word out of your life. If he can't convince you it's not true, he'll just make you busy so you don't have time for it. If he can't convince you it's not true, he will just cause it to become more like drinking dirt as opposed to being at an oasis where you're drinking in the cool waters of God's grace, his truth. The good news is if, if you find yourself in that place where you're honestly saying, I'm not passionate about it, I, I'm dry, we, there's good news. God wants you to know that. In fact, if you can even admit that about yourself, the spirit is at work. But how will you respond to that spirit? The word of God tells us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So if you are not thirsty for God's word, if God's word does not thrill you, ask him for it. Ask him to restore to you the joy of your salvation, because these stories, these accounts, are not meant to be just historical lessons that call us to be smarter believers. They're meant to inspire us to live this side of heaven in ways that Daniel himself lived. We need this word. We need God's grace to make us hunger and thirst for who he is. And that's why a book like this, as David Helm says, can reassure us and it can challenge us, it will, but it can also thrill us. It can thrill us when we realize that the man who wrote these words 
Daniel was carried along by the same Holy Spirit that lives in you if you're a believer. Not just a part of him, but all of him, God himself. So when we open the word, it is a time that is meant to be powerful because the spirit of God is ready to illuminate these things, to reassure us, to challenge us, to thrill us with what it means to live this side of heaven, waiting for the day when for all eternity, we will be thrilled, overwhelmed with his glory. This morning, I want to focus on two parts of Daniel. First thing I want to look at is his name. Secondly, I want to look at what he wrote, particularly in the second verse of Daniel. Daniel's name is very significant. It's a three-syllable word. You may say Daniel, but it's actually three syllables, Daniel. In the Hebrew, the word Dan means judge. The little word letters E mean my, and the last part E-L means God. So Daniel's name means God, my judge. Now this is very substantial for what you're going to see throughout the book of Daniel, because Daniel is motivated by this one truth, that God is my judge. Nebuchadnezzar is not my judge. Darius is not going to be my judge. Other people are not going to be my judge. God and God alone, the one true God, Jehovah, is my judge. That's what my name means. I'm going to live into my name. Now, your name may not be Daniel, but the same truth is present for all who are in Christ. God and God alone is our judge. And what that means is simply this. We need to make every decision to live every day to pursue everything he calls us to, thinking solely about what does God think? What does God say? What has God done? In Daniel's life, when confronted with the things that he was confronted with, it was always through that filter. What does God think? God alone is my judge. What has God done? God alone is my judge. What would God have me do? God alone is my judge. And for all of us who are in Christ, what God says, what God does, what God thinks, what God has written is what is most important. What God thinks about your work matters most. What he thinks about your worship and the way you have just been worshiping him matters most. What God thinks about the way you give of your time and your talents, your treasures, your money, all your resources, what God thinks matters. Not your small group, not even me. What does God think? And he knows. He knows how you think about all those things. What does God think about the way you parent or the way you grandparent? By the way, today is National Grandparents Day. Grandparents, you have such an opportunity to pour into your grandchildren and great-grandchildren, into your children, to others in this church. What God thinks about the way you grandparent matters. What God thinks about the way you date. What God thinks about the things that you look at, the things that you text, what you say or what you think about anything matters to God, all of it. When you're in conflict with someone, how you behave in that conflict, how does God think about that? There's a lot to debate and be frustrated about right now, isn't there, all over our world. 
How does God think about the way believers should be engaging one another and the world? It doesn't matter ultimately what anyone else thinks. It matters what God thinks. Is your behavior pleasing to him? Are you radiant with Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you pursuing reconciliation with someone you have a broken relationship with? Have you gone to someone and said, I was wrong? I, I worry so much about how many times over the last 18 months my tongue has set a forest on fire or how many times I could have put a fire out by offering a rebuke or just I'm not going to listen to that when I didn't. Sins of omission and sins of commission. How many of us have just let a torch and let it burn? What does God think about that? That's what matters most. And that's where Daniel was. He was living into his name, Dan, E-L, God, my judge. Secondly, what did Daniel write? How did that reality, God, my judge, affect the way he wrote? Here we're going to see the sovereignty of God. Look with me at verse 2. I'll start again at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, if we read the Bible too fast, or we simply treat a sermon as information, we don't soak in what's said here. We don't allow ourselves to move into the lived body detail. The people of God had come under siege by a very powerful king and a very powerful nation. Nebuchadnezzar moves into this land to take all of them captive. This is a group of real people. There are mothers with their children. There are fathers who are being taken away and they are walking in this long exile to a place that was not their own. You have to imagine the fear that they're experiencing. Over the last few weeks, our eyes have been seeing visions of reality all over the world as thousands of people are packed into planes leaving a country that they've known, not knowing necessarily where they're going and not knowing whether they would see those loved ones again. Those are real people, real souls. They really matter. Well, so did these people. And you can only imagine what Daniel's thinking is he is one of the attractive, bright leaders that Nebuchadnezzar now wants in his own camp. Nebuchadnezzar were told in verse 2 has vessels of the house of God brought to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God here's what that means in the near ancient east when they had a war and a battle and one of the kings was able to grab something as valuable as the treasuries of this this place of worship they could have just taken them and put them anywhere but when they put them in the treasure house of their God, notice it's little g, what they're saying, what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is, I won. My God beat your God. I defeated you. I am all powerful. That's what's happening here. And so as they remove these vestibules, these things that are really important to the people of God, that's the message that's being sent. More than just those vessels he wanted the people 
like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and many more. This is what was happening, and it was real. But notice what Daniel says. God, my judge. Notice what he says. Back to verse 2 at the top. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The word of God is clear from the beginning to the end about the attributes of God. God is omnipotent, all power. He's omniscient, all knowing. He's omnipresent, everywhere present. He's sovereign. And what that means is that he is in control. And while Daniel could say Nebuchadnezzar is this king, has taken the people of Judah into exile, that's not what Daniel does. Daniel says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God is in control. And when we see events unfolding all around us that are horrific, one crisis unfolding after another, we must, though we can't always make sense of it, never forget that our God really is in control, even with these events that we would call, and he would tell us to call, a bitter providence. David Helm, later in the book, says this, it was not, I'm sorry, it was God, not Nebuchadnezzar, who was ultimately the one moving the will of history to accomplish his eternal ends. It sure looked like God was out of control. You've been through events in your life or you will go through events where you say, it seems like God is out of control. But friends, he's not. There's mystery that exists here and we cannot always make sense of why God is doing what he's doing, but he is at work. The late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce said this, the great and most important theme of Daniel is that there is but one God and that he is sovereign over the events of history. This is a deep doctrine that takes a lot of time to unpack. unpack. But this is what Daniel says early in the letter because it matters. In fact, two other times in chapter one, Daniel is going to say the same thing. Verse eight, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Then in verse 17, the same chapter. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Daniel doesn't get the credit. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get the credit. God gets the credit. God gave and the Lord gave. Now, this is really important. There are times when God in his providence humbles himself in such a way that a king could take the very things that were used to bring worship to him by his people. God could have stopped it, but he didn't. But he's still in control because there will come a day when the real king and the ultimate kingdom will be ushered in. And that earthly king will no longer sense his little victory because God himself is in control. And the greatest picture of this came a little over 2,000 years ago 
when the Lord gave his son, that his son might become sin for his people. His father's wrath poured out on Jesus. There wasn't a darker day in history, nor could there have been a more confusing day for the small group of people who were following Christ when Jesus was arrested, beaten, flogged. And then when he went to the cross, there he's hanging. Darkness descends upon the earth. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cries out in his final words, it is finished. What seemed to be victory for those who hated Christ, what seemed to be victory for our enemy wasn't victory. The victory was God who's in control. The victory was our Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The victory would be seen three days later when that tomb is empty and Jesus has overwhelmed death, has conquered death, is our risen King. But that darkness, that darkest day, when your sin and my sin were poured out on Christ, had to be accomplished in order for this king and his kingdom to be established. You see, God's sovereignty is always meant to push forward our understanding of his plan of salvation. It's not just an attribute for us to say, wow, he's awesome. It's meant for us to see that he is ordering events throughout this world so that his people can see the desperate need that we have for him and would come to saving faith. That's what God is doing. And the Lord gave. In a few minutes, we're going to come to this table. It's a table that the Lord has given to us. It's a table that the people of God come to. It's not a Presbyterian table, but it is a table for believers. It is a table for those who have professed faith in Christ, who have rested and received Jesus alone for their salvation. And that means this, that behind the scenes of your whole life, whether you knew it or not, God was moving towards you to illuminate these truths. So at some point in your life, you would say, I am helpless apart from Christ. I trust you, Jesus, to save me. And he does. For some of you, you may be here today or worshiping with us online because today is the day of your salvation. Come to Christ. Receive him, friend. If today you would say, I don't believe that, not yet, or maybe never you think that way, don't take of the elements. For the word of God says you will be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself, but instead listen and think upon what you've heard. For all who are in Christ, this meal is for you. It is a gift given to us from God, reminding us of the great gift of his one and only son. Take these elements in a moment and allow God, ask God to give you what you need this day to bring him glory. Let's pray. Father, we know from your word that you are the ultimate judge. What you think, what you say, what you have done and what you do is what matters most. Father, we're going to come as people to this table. First, we're going to confess our sins to remember the forgiveness you've given us in Christ. But, oh Lord, do that work even now. Create in us a thrill for you, even in the midst of bitter providence. 
that would enable us to trust you fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.